Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is musician, songwriter, arranger, and producer Van Dyke Parks. Best known for his work with Brian Wilson on the Beach Boys' legendarily ill-fated Smile album, Parks has released a number of solo recordings, scored several films, arranged countless sessions, and worked with a long list of artists including The Birds, Randy Newman, Harry Nilsson, Little Feet, U2, Fiona Apple, Joanna Newsom, and many others. This episode of Songcraft is brought to you by the fine folks at the fourth annual St. Augustine Songwriters Festival in St. Augustine, Florida. That's happening Friday, October 22nd through Sunday, October 24th. It's happening at three venues, a whole bunch of Nashville writers. You're going to want to check this out. If you listened to our last episode, you heard us talk with Arliss Albritton, who is the founder of the St. Augustine Songwriter Festival. He gave us some great information about what to expect and what a great vibe they've got down there with all of these writers just coming together from established writers to people who are on their way up to people who maybe just enjoy sitting and listening to the original composers do their songs in person. You know, some of these are are songs that are are massive hits, but to hear the actual writer do them, there's something uh, a little little different about that something that's really special yeah to hear somebody like mark beeson play you know when she cries or, or billy currington's number one we are tonight uh, people like mark Irwin, who wrote uh, alan jackson's here in the real world i mean you're, you're seeing number ones all over these people's names bobby pinson james the blank justin wilson tommy cecil i mean the list goes on yeah if you're interested at all in the world of nashville songwriting you know and nashville does have its own kind of songwriting community and it really is a community and this is an opportunity for some of those nashville folks to bring that sense of community to a different location and a really unique experience. So go to staugustinesongwritersfestival.com. You can see the full lineup. ton of writers are going to be there. Get a sense for what's going on, and uh, maybe it's the type of thing you might want to go to yourself. Part one. So, Scott, I think our listeners know this. Uh, This is not too much behind-the-curtain stuff, but we edit the episodes that we put out. Way to give away the trade secrets. Ah, jeez. Well, you know, the the reason that we do it is sometimes we'll stumble over things that we say. Right. Sometimes the the interviews are about three times as long as they should be, (laughs) and we try to get them into, like, a listenable format. And sometimes it's just like, oh, this this felt like it got a little off the rails here, and we'll kind of, you know, put things together. But today we had a discussion with Van Dyke Parks. Yep. And, man... That guy is so intelligent, so well-spoken, and able to hold court on so many different kinds of issues that we just kind of followed him where he went. And you are going to hear today an unedited episode of Songcraft. Yeah, this is really more of a... With Van Dyke, I feel like he's kind of almost thinking one step ahead. Yeah. You know, he he's like... Uh, he's one of those guys that's such a creative person that you can almost hear like, you know, the sound of like electrical wires, like crackle, like crack. You can almost hear like the crackle sound of like his mind working. You know, he is definitely not interested in resting on his laurels or, or looking at his past accomplishments or whatever. He, he lives in the moment. He thinks actively about music and and creativity. He has a lot uh, of thoughts about what that should look like now in terms of its relationship to commerciality. So yeah, this is a, just like, 
we were just like, man, let's just hang into our hats right. and see where this goes because what a fascinating guy. Yeah, and you know, often you know we'll, we'll be like, hey, we've got to touch on this song or that song. We feel like there are certain touch points we've got to you know, got to go for. And he kept talking about so many interesting things in terms of just art as a concept and, and its role in society that I almost forgot, you know, we should really talk about some specific things. <laughs> and one of them being the Smile album that right. he worked on with Brian Wilson. I think that, you know, if you're a music fan, you know that Smile is like the most legendary album that never was. Right. Um, and uh, if you're not super familiar, after the Beach Boys put out their Pet Sounds album, which kind of blew everybody's mind, it was it was definitely a, a giant leap from the Surf and Safari, you know, Beach Boys. And that was like Brian Wilson's emergence as this you know, amazing maestro of the Beach yeah. Boys and this musical mind in terms of production and arrangement and everything. Um, after that, he was moving on to the next project. It was an album that was slated to be called Smile. Van Dyke Parks was the lyricist that was yeah. working with him, which is interesting because Van Dyke is primarily a composer and an orchestrator. He's a, he, he was known as an arranging guy. Yeah. Um, and, and he came in to be the lyricist for the Smile Sessions. And it was like... It just became this year long process and it was like the whole thing just almost got away from everybody. And there's been there's, I'm sure there's probably been books written about right. Smile. But essentially what happened is the album got shelved. Some of the songs came out as an album called Smiley Smile and a very stripped down kind of lo fi version uh, instead. And then. Um, years later, almost 40 years later, Brian Wilson put out a record called Brian Wilson presents smile. Mm -hmm. And it was what he and Van Dyke kind of revisited as, uh, something approximating the original vision. And yeah. then in 2011, Capitol records put out a smile box set, which was like all the smile sessions. And there's even an entire disc uh, devoted to the song Heroes and Villains, which is a song that Van Dyke and, and Brian worked on together that was just grandiose in scope. And there's an entire disc of just the development yeah. of the sessions of that song. So it's almost like this album is this mythological thing that was like what, what might have been but right. never really came to fruition at the time. Well, there's something about that, the kind of white whale album out there. You know, the, uh, you think about this Kanye record that just dropped and everybody's like, is it, when is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? He spent so long on it. He's been talking about it. Yeah. Well, before before that, you know, that wasn't the first kind of uh, white whale Moby Dick album. Right. There was also the Chinese Democracy uh, album yeah. from Guns N' Roses, right. which if, if you remember, you know, it's like Axel's working on it. Right. He's working on it. It's going to come out maybe next year, maybe this year. Right. Took forever and ever and ever. But th there's something about that. And I remember when, when that Smile box set came out, I went to the library and checked it, <laughs> and checked it out. Um, <laughs> And I don't think I returned it for a year or so, which is how I handle <laughs> library stuff. So if you had just bought the box set, you would have paid less than it, your probably, library fines. Probably. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it was exciting because I had heard about it for, for years, you know? It, it, anytime you kind of get into Pet Sounds, somebody's like, well, have you heard about this Smile record that was supposed right. to follow it up? Yeah. Uh, they just released this uh, Marvin Gaye record, uh, I think about a year ago, called You're the Man, right. which was kind of meant to be the follow-up to what's going on. But again, it had been shelved and put away. These things to me are fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. How do people follow up what in some cases are considered their greatest work? Yeah. You know, and the, the pressure that comes along with that of just knowing that you've done something that's kind of set everybody on their ear and gone, wow, this yeah. turned some heads. And then, well, now I still got to make another record. You know, yeah. what, what do I do next? Um, and, you know, there's a, a lot of 
things about interpersonal conflicts and, and drugs and, you know, Brian Wilson's mental health and, and all yeah. these things that play into it that almost just make it that much more of this kind of grandiose American, you know, music myth almost that that's, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, uh, he touched on that. He talked about the pressure that Brian was under and uh, partly because of that, I'm really glad that we actually got to talk about Smile. Yeah. Because for a minute I was like, are we going to? Are we going to get there? Are we going to talk about smile? Yeah, yeah. Um, we but, did, but I was I was ready to take notes on just about everything Van Dyke was saying because yeah. it was there was some really kind of just interesting looks at you. Know, he would talk about the geometry of music, yeah, and even that just made me stop for a minute and go, right. wow, what's what's he mean by that? Yeah, and just talking about sort of the abstract things and the concrete things of music, just just a brilliant guy. Yeah, and you know, some of you guys who are listening who are songwriters, maybe you're in the middle of making your own smile right now. Uh, maybe you want to record some of your own music and you have gotten lost. You have yeah. lost your way. Well, fortunately, folks, uh, if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you know that one of our sponsors uh, is Justin and the good people at Pearl Snap Studios in Nashville. And it doesn't matter if you live in Nashville or not. If you've got a song idea, even if it's a very rough demo that you've created just with your phone, you can send Justin the MP3 of that and he will turn that into an amazing demo, an amazing recording, and then you don't have to be lost to history and and that become your uh, your <laughs> smile. <laughs> yeah, and I've worked with Justin. I've written songs with him. I've I've had him demo songs that I've written. But don't hold that against him. Don't hold that against him. Scott has lunched with him. I have. So we, can... <laughs> we had tacos and <laughs> yeah. uh, nice guy. I yeah. liked him. Um, but yeah, we're always happy when Pearl Snap is a sponsor of a Songcraft episode and today is no exception. So get over there to pearlsnapstudios.com and see what Justin can do for you. And if you tell him that Songcraft sent you, you even get a discount. So don't don't forget to mention it. Part two. Van Dyke Parks is one of the more unique American musicians, songwriters, arrangers, and record producers to emerge in the 1960s. Born in Mississippi, he attended the American Boy Choir Boarding School in Princeton, New Jersey in his formative years. His first career was as a child actor, appearing on over 100 episodes of various TV shows, including his role as the kid from downstairs on The Honeymooners. He did theater and appeared in films, including The Swan with Grace Kelly and Alec Guinness, before going on to study music at the Carnegie Institute in Pittsburgh, where he briefly studied with Aaron Copeland. In the early 1960s, Van Dyke began playing acoustic guitar and moved to the West Coast, where he and his brother Carson performed on the coffeehouse circuit as a duo known as the Steel Town Two. He landed his first job arranging with the bare necessities for Disney's The Jungle Book in 1963 before a brief stint as an MGM recording artist in the middle of the decade. Van Dyke is perhaps best known, however, for his collaborations with Brian Wilson, with whom he worked as a lyricist on the Beach Boys' ill-fated Smile album. The pair revisited their work with the release of Brian Wilson Presents Smile in 2004. Though the Smile recordings weren't released at the time, Van Dyke signed with Warner Brothers Records and, in 1967, released his album Song Cycle, an ambitious debut that incorporated a wide range of traditional American musical influences with experimental recording techniques. He went on to produce the debut albums by Ry Cooter and Randy Newman and took a job as an executive at Warner Brothers Records in the 1970s. He became enamored with Calypso music in the era, releasing a couple of albums as an artist showcasing the genre and producing the Esso Trinidad Steel Band. 
Toward the end of the decade, he began composing film soundtracks before returning in the 1980s with two albums of original material, Jump, which explored the Uncle Remus and Br'er Rabbit stories, and Tokyo Rose, which explored the intersection between Japanese and American culture in the context of a trade war. In the 1990s, he and Brian Wilson teamed up once again to release the album Orange Crate Art. His most recent full-length album as a solo artist is 2013's Songs Cycled. The long list of musicians Van Dyke has worked with includes The Birds, Tim Buckley, Harry Nilsson, Little Feet, Steve Young, Phil Oakes, Frank Zappa, Ringo Starr, U2, Fiona Apple, Joanna Newsom, Skrillex, and many others. Van Dyke, welcome to Songcraft. Nice to be with you guys. By the way, I, I admire your work. Oh, well, thank you thank very you. much. It means a lot. I mean that. Our show, as you know, is about songwriters, but you're a, a songwriter who wears many other hats, including arranger, producer, film scorer. We could go on and on. Um, but one of your newest projects is an EP with Mexican harpist, singer, and songwriter Veronica Valerio, uh, with whom you collaborated to orchestrate the EP Only in America. And I'm curious about your thoughts on the interaction between, you know, songwriting on the one hand, but then orchestrating or arranging on the other hand, which really does dramatically impact the character of a song itself. I'm curious if you view there being kind of a line between those two disciplines, or is that all part of the same creative instinct for you? Well, it's very interesting because you speak to, I think, a fear of anyone who seeks notoriety or fame in songwriting. There is a danger, I believe, in becoming a persona, creating a persona from which you cannot escape. Hmm. And uh, that happens. Uh, it happens. It happened to Brian Wilson. He became a beach boy. Randy Newman became Randy Newman. Hmm. And, you know, and um, people, Tom Waits became Tom Waits. There is a decisive imagery to the songwriter himself, and the backstory has been uh, celebrated, I think, uh, uh, to uh, an unnecessary degree. That is, songwriters take precedence of over their bodies of work, and that happens to people. And, in fact, by seeking anonymity, I achieved it. I'm now 78, so a pretty, pretty well protected, that is, being able to stand back and not hold the bag, that is, be responsible for the song. But when I do an arrangement for somebody else, I'm telling you, it ain't about me. Mm-hmm. It's about that person. And it is about not being uh, monocular in the way you approach life and trying to find that, like the ultimate degree of mutual empowerment and make a big deal out of that artist. Give that artist a proscenium and try to find a, a way to arrange around an artist that is both invisible and structurally solid to last. Hmm. Hmm. What's in it, what, what you're describing there, actually, it sounds like, uh, like a character you know, trait, even more so than just a creative pursuit. It sounds like servanthood in a way. Absolutely humbling. It might, uh, absolutely humbling. You must be prepared to eat a lot of crow. <laughs> and I learned that lesson a long time ago uh, with other people. Speaking of things you learned uh, in, in the past, I believe you were born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and apparently spent time in Louisiana growing up. 
you know, that Southern culture is, is really rich creatively. Did, did that have any impact on you as a young kid who was learning to, you know, communicate creatively? Well, I think it, uh, it certainly does. I mean, in fact, uh, you cannot escape, I mean, the curiosity for the Big Bang. Where am I really from? What was that like for them? I mean, I want to know what it was when I was conceived. I mean, it's not that I want to intrude on my parents, sure. <laughs> but I wonder. But but when I think about a birth, or I think even about a song, I don't just consider it uh, for its merit. I look at it in the timeline position that it has. So, like when I look at the confections of the great rock and roll of the '60s, and I see the turmoil around all of that theater of the absurd, the bell-bottoms and, and uh, the, the trappings of the counter-revolution. It was all like, and it, and it was really a desperate attempt to celebrate in a, in a very dark time and still get something done. Hmm. So I think that um, I'm happy with that with that history of effort. But you see, I must continue it because I don't have the curse of any great triumphs behind me. My, my job is ahead. When I, got the, when I got an offer from remote Mexico to seek solace in the, in the, the, uh, the quarantine that my wife and I were subject to, we were told by the governor not to leave the house because we were, and get this at the age of 78, vulnerable. <laughs> that is the most objectionable word for a man my age. Wow. We, we have all been humbled hmm. by yeah. the virus. And, and I think that that, you know, and when you arrange, you know, it's an exercise in humility and you must be prepared not to know anything and be scared to death that you'll do the wrong thing. I'm just perched to do a, an arrangement for Anara George. Fantastic geometry and her songs. I like, I like the math. I, I think of music at, I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm a dweeb, and I think I am. Uh, <laughs> but I think of music in geometric terms. I really do think of it as an architecture. And uh, Inara's, um, her math is really good, and I enjoy her anecdotes and sudden surprises. And she reminds me of her late great father, Lowell, in that respect, a really interesting scansion. And that's the word I would think is a, this is this is the, one of the gold rings of uh, song creativity yeah. is creative scansion. And yeah. she's got it. So here I am, and I'm about ready. So when I leave you guys, I'll I will get into it. Wow. And uh, we already did one. It was very nice. Uh, we did for the Audubon Society to get to 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 uh, contribute to them so that. Um, they could buy new habitat for migratory birds uh, that are threatened. Mm -hmm. So isn't yeah. that nice to feel that you're being useful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's yeah, cool. guys, so, yeah. Well, you know, oftentimes on our show we talk to people about their early influences, and we get, you know, usually the answers are about the first records that they remember hearing, but I've heard you say that you weren't particularly influenced by records early on and that, you know, recorded music kind of came in later for you. I'd love to hear more about your early musical memories that shaped you if it wasn't from hearing records per se. All right. All right. Oh, this is great. Uh, 
every summer went to Chautauqua. That's where the New York film would vacation. Hmm. Uh, I was in a boy choir, boarding school, and we go up there. I learned how to, I learned how to sit in the back of a canoe and do the C stroke, the J stroke. We were we're at Chautauqua Lake, one of the great geophysical events from the Ice Age when the when the when the when the Great Lakes were formed. And there's Lake Chautauqua, and I would go up there every summer, and I was filled with music, immersion. My first opera was Aida. I was I was nine when I saw Aida. Oh, wow. What a piece of music! Yeah. To bring a payroll in. I mean, really, uh, I was, and they had a real, <laughs> had a horse posing as a camel. It was a great production. Yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, what can I say? And I heard uh, Foray's Requiem there. And I heard George Gershwin there. I think it was, um, it was the great symphonist, the black symphonist, William Grant Still, hmm. his orchestration of uh, Rhapsody in Blue. I heard things there that really floored me. But yet, I was born in 43. In 48, it was the first time I ever heard Spike Jones on a single in a Cocktails for Two. And that changed my perspective as much as Les Paul did in 53 with How High the Moon. Huh. It changed the way I listened to live music. I realized it was different. And I was very interested in it. One record I did, I'm in, I'm just a piece of confetti in a, in a, in a record called Mephistopheles Prologue. It's a work by uh, Boito. He was Verdi's librettist. Listen here. Superior musician to Verdi hmm. in wow. my book was the guy who was writing the lyrics. Here he wrote a piece of music and I was at Carnegie Hall wow. in a large choir, a boy choir that had a, that 150 other singers from the Robert Shaw Corral and the New York film, Toscanini's next to last performance. That was in 1955. The night that uh, Joe Frazier was defeated uh, 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 in that great boxing match. Yeah. So don't tell me that that can't, that can't teach me tolerance. And that is... And it's like Randy Newman said something that really hit it. I think he said, I'm a goat. I eat everything. <laughs> I think that's the way to look hmm. at music. I try very hard. Today is Arnold Schoenberg's birthday. He said, you got to remember, you know, that to make something where people remember it, and the next morning they can get up and sing it. Remember, well, in fact, he didn't follow his own advice. I'm not partial to Schoenberg, but I'm partial to the melodians, the people that have powerful melodies boast about. And so I still struggle with that. Melody, to me, is the vehicle that has brought us all any possible with, with things that they used to put, they used to actually pay you residuals for coming up with songs. <laughs> <laughs> you remember Glacial Ice, don't you guys? Oh, it's yeah. Like it's, like, it's like residuals in music. <laughs> it used to be a thing. It's all eroding. My thirst. My 38-year-old son just got back from a two-week trek up a, that was like four days overnight camping, up to the mouth of a glacier, the last one at the edge of Russia and Georgia, the nation. Right. Why would he want to climb it? And it's like Sir Edward said, Edward Hillary said, when he, 
first man to crawl up uh, Everest. He, they said, why did you do that? He said, because it's there. <laughs> well, my son, my son was there to see the, that, that great glacial uh, lake and the, at the mouth of the glacier. So, you wow. know, I, can, I consider this kind of, and that's to me, uh, like they say, rare as hen's teeth. It's impossible to figure out how we can monetize just our survival as mm-hmm. artists. Mm-hmm. I am having a difficult time, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. Yeah. Had yeah. I chosen another route, had I continued up the executive ladder, I would be on a comfy chair with a swimming pool outside, yeah. having to make a tough decision. <laughs> yeah, and you'd be miserable. And I think I would, yeah. Yeah. You know, part of what goes into becoming one of the greats, like, like you are, is the, the things that you listen to, and you mentioned some of the some of the greats that you were exposed to early on, uh, and and then I see that you majored in music at the Carnegie Institute and studied under Aaron Copeland. Speaking of the greats, uh, I'd love to know kind of uh, about his influence in, in your work. Oh no, no, Copeland came uh, for a week. I was in a class of Copeland's for a week, but and so I would say that that made a big impact on me, just Mm. being there. Yeah. Getting an A and a pat on the ass. I think it was uh, the A. I think it was my effort, not my ass, that got me (laughs) the A. But, 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 uh, that would, I'm I'm an optimist. But um, (laughs) the older I get, the better I was. (laughs) Thing is, um, yes. That made a big impact on me because I was already on that trail where, where I was totally in, uh, fat, infatuated with folk themes that were put into orchestral, uh, uh, the proscenium, the big framework of, of literature, with Beethoven doing it with the Ode to Joy or, or you know, Marseillaise, these things of uh, Ravel's pictures at an ex- exhibition shows at Cacciatorian, all these Percy Granger, huge influence on me, was the guy who turned uh, a theme from uh, the Londonderry Air uh, into um, Danny Boy, Hmm. Percy Granger. And I think that year was uh, 1911, I'm not sure. It was in the uh, first decade of the uh, uh, the 20th century or near that, because it was popular during World War II. Doughboy sang, Oh, Danny Boy... They would sing that, but it was a folk theme, and it was in literature. It was on the piano. You could get it. And Granger, listen, 10 cents a copy of for a song in 1910. Mm. 10 cents a copy for a song in 1910. Mm. The publisher and the songwriter would share that revenue. All right. Now, folks, look at it. Look at the way people treat the arts. It looks like a decoration. Hmm. Maybe it's a celebration of youth and narcissism. What is it dominated by? Rebellion, maybe. Um, Trumpeting the schisms between the black and the white and so forth. No, listen here. Music is not a decoration. Hmm. It's an invitation to understanding, and 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 it should the people that that sacrifice. And I don't mean the, don't give it to David Crosby, but but for Pete's sake, give it to his wife. <laughs> you know, give it to somebody who has suffered to be beautiful, to make life, to define life. Because I'm seeing this. I, I hate to take you down this trail, because I am not dystopian. 
I am not hopeless. I'm not hopeless. But we must change the way we treat the arts hmm. and the songwriters. And I'm sorry, folks, but and uh, I'm I am lucky to have just and just to and 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 I am being honest when I say I have had to learn that my only joy will probably be in the discovery that we are making this music and no one may hear it hmm. yeah. and no one may dance to it. Hmm. And so I've, of course, I've had to come to those thinking that my work is futile because I haven't been branded. Hmm. And I think I've been accused of having too much thought in my work. I can't help that. Right. I see this world is frying and that, that the echo politics is job one. It's no longer songs that in trucks that blow up with girlfriends that have deceived them that, that, and, and first world problems of love lost that really interest me. To me, it's the bubble boys in, in the mirror, in their mirror palaces. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and this is what, why I believe my rebellion during quarantine was to try to crawl out of that pop bubble and to and amplifying my own personal uh, uh, problems. Yeah, I think I'm interested. I think I'm maybe interested. I won't say interesting, but I think I'm interested enough to do another album. Let's say uh, an album, say a baker's dozen of original songs at the piano. I think I can sustain that. Uh-huh. And, and only because I'm so interested, and and uh, that's what I was told to do. My mama told me. She said, "Don't attempt to be interesting. <laughs> be interested." And I, that is what I try to do. Uh, I like that. So I bore people who want another. Uh, they want me to uh, like a schnauzer with a hairball. They want me to. Uh, they want me to belch out another record. Right. Uh, right. Of, of that, that, that will describe my personality. Well, my personality, you see, is is, is a study in being nobody, <laughs> because I think that there is a lot to be learned, and there's every bit as much to be learned from the authority of success as there is to be learned from the authority of failure. Hmm. And you don't learn nothing if you haven't been able. To survive failure and learn from it, so I ta- I reserve the right to fail hmm. in all my work. You, you you talk about a changing landscape in terms of the way you know it's kind of the role of music and certainly the way music is perceived. Uh, and I'm curious, kind of how you feel that that you know not only who you are now, but the role of your career as instruction plays in that. I mean, I think about even something like, you know, your first arranging job for the bare necessities for Disney's Jungle Book. The simple bare necessities Forget about your worries and your strife I mean the 
Bare necessities are Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life wherever I wander. What a different era that happened in. And, and I'm sure the way that opportunity came about is different than the way a, a 2021 opportunity would come about. Yeah, how do you sort of connect that moment in your past to what you see in the music world now? Well, no, no, it is an entirely different world. And as much as you or I or any of us who live there, uh, 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 of course, I'm probably the oldest thing in this room, but, but, <laughs> the, 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 but we were different people, and those were different, uh, and they were different uh, circumstances. And, in fact, my first job was not born of meritocracy, I don't believe, although I could play the guitar real fast and, and with accuracy. And I could, uh, piccato, nylon string. And I knew in 63 when steel string guitars, uh, when Bob Dylan got to free wheel and the Stones came over to purloin those goods they called the blues, I knew that uh, uh, nylon string guitar would be marginalized, mm-hmm. and I thought. But, but we would, so everything was different, as were we. Mm-hmm. And I believe we should allow that. And, and this is something I think is a, this is a wonderful thing for an artist, I think. It's both uh, yeah, humiliating and, I think, marvelous that in a public way, you're constantly driven to reinvent yourself, your own perspective. Hmm. I look, for example, at some of what I think is terrific, uh, uh, politically correct, that is socially redeeming and quite humorous and, and um, insightful, um, uh, topicality in the Br'er Rabbit hmm. project I did called Jump. About 1984? Yeah, right about then, yeah. yeah. But, but uh, they always waited a, a year to put out my records. They hmm. kept them on a shelf for a year so they could write them off and then still <laughs> legally charge me for wow. those same expenses that they'd written off. It's called double dipping, Jeez. part of the criminality Jeez. of the record executives hmm. of that time. Yeah. So, uh, 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 at least unethical, and I think uh, uh, felonious in some cases. So, I got away from that, and but I got into the Br'er Rabbit project not because I thought it was cute, not just because I wanted it to see it not condemned to southern nurseries as an article of assumption of white pride. No. Something of black pride, authorial. Brought, brought to literature, uh, and then, then, and then suffered a defeat with with um, with uh, the Disney picture, and and <clears throat> was considered too vanilla. And actually, as one black reviewer uh, in Saint Petersburg uh, remarked, it should be these tales should be an article of black pride. Louis Gates, the great. Uh, a black uh, uh, documentarian who has a show about roots on PBS. Mm-hmm. This this Harvard uh, and academic um, sees the indispensable nature of these uh, folk tales of Br'er Rabbit uh, um, as absolutely uh, 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 universal to the American experience, and as Mark Twain noted, our most important piece of stolen goods. So I thought that the unified field of these morality tales would be embraced. Hmm. 
I also emphasize that it is healthy and and and, and, and too late, but welcome that Confederate uh, generals are taken off their public uh, pedestals mm-hmm, right. and put into museums. But I do not believe that you should throw babies out with a bath. And I still protest that the wisdom in these folk tales, I agree with the great black academic, that these are essential hmm. to uh, the uh, black American experience. And yet, now too hot to, to handle for me. I've, I've, it's been many years, it was 1971, when I went through the south of the United States with 28 black men from Trinidad, a steel band. And that's when I discovered America. Mm-hmm. I discovered what was that there, that there was some systemic problem. I could see it. And so what I did was come out with an album that sounds confectionary mm-hmm. because that, I continue to believe what, Steve, what Phil Oaks said, that wonderful, uncorrupted man, when he said, in such ugly times, the only true protest is beauty. I do that in my work. I try uh-huh. to make it listenable. Wow. I try not to challenge the listener. Look what happens when artists challenge the li- listener. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it just, uh, look what it, it, Joni Mitchell gave up on it. Hmm. Turned to her other great uh, avenue of expression, uh, uh, visual art. Yeah. But it just gets annoying. Uh, that, you know, am I going to be able to lug these people ahead? Well, I don't have that many people to lug ahead. Uh-huh. I, have uh-huh. a, I, I, I have my family to serve, and I only have that thing about which is important, and that is to do the right thing at 78. Now, I must say, as I spin toward the precipice, I want to say it is easier to do the right thing. Hmm. Writing a song, a last thing that should motivate you is self-amplification because that's not the enemy. We have a common enemy, things that bind us, the universality. I would like to think about that. I did it in Tokyo Rose, now another topic that has spent. It was about the emergence of Japan as the world's leading economy. They bought Rockefeller Center, folks. Hmm. Give me a break. This was... This was, this was an offense to my psyche, and as a songwriter, I went right to it. And I want to tell you something. About, oh, five months after I did Tokyo Rose, that, that Warner Brothers, when I did Trade War, a song in Tokyo Rose, one of the vice presidents said, you can't do that to our sister uh, com- company, Warner Japan. They're going to they're gonna freak out. <laughs> no, I, I handled some tough issues about the, the bruise on the American psyche. We were no longer number one. Hmm. And I saw that thing. It was a big, fearsome bug, bubble. Never had happened before. It was way before China right. became the, the, the reality that it is. Yeah. This was what we were looking at America as, as a, a Chinese theme park. This was Japan. And, and I had to deal with it because I was going to Japan, and I promised them I would address the issue. So I did the... The record. Well, it was like nobody was on board with me. It was an embarrassment to everyone. Mm-hmm. I did a record that no one liked. How could they say that? That uh, you know how nobody was going to reconcile that quickly with Japan. I'd met 
Japanese musicians, and I felt like a reckoning was due, and I had to do it. So, and uh, about six months, five or six months after I did it, I got a phone call from Kurt Vonnegut, and Kurt Vonnegut sent me a book that he had just written called Hocus Pocus, and he said that he didn't know that we were on the same target. And it was so sweet, and it was about the same collapse of the American psyche, hmm. uh, in the, which was unheard of after world. Folks, I came from a youth with Dwight Eisenhower. Amazing to me that Vonnegut, who was a hero of mine, was absolutely absorbed in this phenomenon. It was a novelty. The United States was number two. Hmm. We can ask Thomas Alva Edison, telephone Alexander Graham Bell. And if someone comes here with something to sell, just make yourself clear and tell him to go straight to hell. Trade war for your peace and your protection. Give us speed and new direction. Someone needs... From a songwriting perspective, I mean, you talk about the the Jump album, which is you know centered on the the Br'er Rabbit stories, or, or Tokyo Rose is centered on this concept of kind of this trade war with the with Japan and the U.S. And even referencing your work in the '70s, it was very calypso heavy, even though y- you didn't write a lot of those songs. But I look at all these albums, and they have distinct themes. And I'm curious for you as a writer. Um, it seems that you really like to get into a, a particular theme and explore it in, in an album-length project as opposed to just kind of writing one-off songs. I'm wondering if that's, if that's true. Fair question, but don't forget, I was dominated by the medium, and the medium was the message. And what was the medium? The medium was the album, no. and the album, the album was a meditation for people. They'd look at the artwork, study the liner notes. I was into that. Uh, that was that was my market target was the album reality, and so I felt an album should have a cohesive theme. And by the way, it's not something that I would have known and think about when I'm doing it because to me the whole process is absolutely thoughtless, uh, and uh, you just have to follow your nose when you're going somewhere. Hmm. And um, the instinct being the, the superior uh, the provider, you can't figure these things out. Uh, so you can't make these things up. Albums happen to people who promise to deliver them. The album finds its own course. But there's something true in all of those cases, inadvertent as it is. It is uh, right in line with the advisory from Eleanor Roosevelt, who was my favorite first lady. Eleanor said, small minds discuss people. Average minds discuss events. Great minds discuss issues. Mm. Wow. Uh, I think she said it. Uh, she started out with great minds. But this is the thing. It's the issues that get me. Mm. How can anybody think that they can go to bed without, without first reckoning with Thunberg, mm. yeah. the ecologist, right, right. the new generation? Folks, it's about toilet training. Let's get real here. You just can't hang a bagel out of a limousine and go to your home where there are no sidewalks. 
to annoy you. Hmm. You can't do that, folks. You must incorporate these sensibilities into your songs, I believe, to make them matter. And you don't have to drive a pack with a ball peen half hammer. It can be ever confectionary, uh, as it was with Yellow Taxi of Joni Mitchell, speaking of old time. Hmm. I'm not forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I know that I don't know, however. And that has really taken me into some wonderful places. I think also about, as I look back with uh, appreciation for the loyalty of my family, mm. uh, who my wife and I live in a small home in Hollywood. We would prefer, as I said, the comfy chair with the pool. <laughs> but but there is no such thing. Right. But there is no finer uh, tool for friendly persuasion. I I think in uh, in all these affairs, uh, mm-hmm. there's nothing better than what the song can do. Mm-hmm. We shall overcome. Damn it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, uh, I, and I mean, uh, I, I find that. Uh, that it's wonderful. Uh, I wish I had the gift for the real thing. I had a friend who was in the Pozo Seacoast Singers. They helped. They helped sell Coca-Cola. You know, I think that the idea that a song can be the ultimate reduction in thought. You know, and and that that's a big deal. I mean, to me. Alan Two Saints, yes, we can. I mean, how you can't beat that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't beat. I'm just a cork on the ocean. You can't beat that. That mm. that is condensed of great songwriting and and its ability to just catch this self shuffle mentality that we have here in the on demand America. Mm-hmm. I look at songwriting and those issues as different. Things now. I'm not thinking about hanging things together. I'm not that ambitious or clever, but I would like to have one art song at a time issue into uh, a collection. Yeah, I'd like to get the achievement of an album, but but not but 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 realizing that nobody's going to listen to an album. Hmm. Yeah. And and that and that so that cannot be my concern hmm. that that I once had. Because I wanted, in my in my tight focus uh, uh, for um, for um, the environment of a of a record, I wanted it to be that specific and escape mechanism. Mm-hmm. But now I need to do different things. I need to hustle in uh, an on-demand songwriting ability, something smaller. You know, you, you talk about the idea of, in a way, we've gone through this interesting transformation where you came up in an era where it was all about singles. And then you really came of age in the time where it became about the album. And, and now we've almost returned back to where people don't listen to whole albums anymore. But I, I, look, I look at an album like song cycle which is you know your first full length you know absolutely legendary release and 
I believe that that was, you know, one of the early albums that utilized eight track recording, which was kind of a new thing. Um, I'm curious in what ways did the possibilities of the studio influence your approach to actually writing the music itself? Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You remember that, that vinyl records were selling a great deal in those days and the record companies were paying 90% of a hundred percent because of breakage. Uh, because although, uh, vinyl doesn't break, but, I so I did during that great gravy train when uh, fifty to hundred thousand uh, dollar budgets were commonplace um, because the profits were were wonderful. Um, I spent my money on orchestras. Other people spent their money on real estate, homes, and stayed in you know was great for ZZ Top. They had a lot of money left over to get that real estate. And, and a lot of songwriters did the same in L.A. and were very happy with, uh, with the aw shucks uh, campfire guitar, bass, and uh, drums. And, uh, and that would maybe add a steel string there, a lap steel, mm-hmm. just, uh, for, or a Jews harp to just dress it up a little bit there. I mean, so a lot of people wanted to do that. But I felt that it was my opportunity and my job. I mean, it was almost like, I don't want to get religious here, but I would say it was a burning bush. God told me, learn something. Make the room sound in the, in the, in the recording hall, but utilize the marvels of this incredible velocity in the improvement of acoustic music. We could put a mandolin for Rai Kudu in front of, wall, of a wall of brass, and the mandolin would still survive because now we were allowed to put a, ma- a, 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 uh, a mandolin in an isolation booth or in front of a very close mic. Hmm. So we could do, beyond making the room sound, which had always been, you know, take one, Dean Martin would come in, make the room sound, take one, okay? I went to one of those sessions, hmm. Dean Martin. Uh-huh. Had a small, he had a small ice box that had ice in it, so that he could have a drink. <laughs> That's special. No, it's amazing. Wow. So yeah, so yeah, but but you see that it was an invitation to exploration. The advances in the studio. What Song Cycle went from four track. My first experience was at MGM Records in '63. That was uh, "Come to the Sunshine." That was three track, and it was "Take One or Two. I don't know which. Along came Song Cycle, we start, but uh, no, nobody was throwing me any money, really. I was, uh, uh, it was just get the piano done and then then add the marimba. Well, what am I going to do with this marimba that's here? Well, I think, well, let's see. 
my God, if you just, if you, if you slow down the, the tape from 15 IPS to 7.5 IPS, that's half the speed, you've slowed down the speed by half. So if you want to play a rapid marimba solo, do that, and then see what it sounds like hmm. at speed. And guess what? It was an octave. Hmm. Now, Pythagoras, the great Greek mathematician, wasn't around to tell me that I would get an octave if I low if if I lowered or or, or uh, doubled halved or doubled the speed. I had to find that out myself. And when I did, I put a marimba on the first thing I recorded, which was Donovan's Colors. And I sounded like I was an adequate marimba player. So all of this stuff was just a matter of, uh, on the all golden, I put a capstan on the regulating of the the wheel uh, as the tape went through the gate to uh, just on the intro Hmm. to to abstract the uh, dominant 7-9 chords that I have the arpeggiated harp to. Was I interested in making a record that communicated something to someone? I had no idea, believe me. I had no idea that anyone was going to listen to this record, or if it if they did, it would get the, the uh, at least a faint praise of a New York, a struggling New York uh, demi-classicist. I mean, that I would get praised for my effort, you know, but it wouldn't be treated with any importance or notoriety or so. But boy, did it make a lot of people mad. It went made a lot of people mad because I didn't conform. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to do was sound like I was living in the present tense. I had my own problems. When Song Cycle came out, I was working out my in- unresolved grief about my 23-year-old brother's death, the death of my president, the napalm in, in Vietnam. Now, folks, it was a troublesome time. Hmm. Imagine, for example, and, and, and a psychological comparability to the bruise that has been inflicted on humanity uh, universally by uh, the this mindless virus. It was troubling, folks. It was troubling. Yeah. And that plays, in, that plays into the detergents about what motivates uh, an artist to even say, I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's the thing that motivates. It's these agitations of the present tense. Now, it takes you everywhere. And I think that it's fun 
I mean, my joy has been to to serve others with equal passion. And, you know, it's like everybody says, your album, it's not my album. A whole bunch of people worked on this album. If I, somebody said, I hear that you like Rye Cooter's album, that just kind of galls me because I had a pivotal role in that as much as I did with Randy's first record. Right, yeah. Absolutely indispensable at the time. Pardon me. Yeah. It happens to be that I was the right card at the right time doing something that wasn't concerned for the unanimity of credit. Isn't yeah. it wonderful, said President Truman. Isn't it astonishing, said President Truman, how much can be accomplished if you just don't care who gets the credit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Even the, even the very assignation artist, I, I was absolutely, when I got to Warner Brothers, I had signed as an artist at MGM because I was 21 years old. They got me just right in the right month, so it was legal and tender. <laughs> I was a hot, hot, I was, I was, I was, I was a corporate prey there. Yeah. And then we got to, to Warner Brothers and they called me an artist. I don't want to be an artist. That's yeah. not right. Now, to me, that that's a guy who who lived in in a frame on the on a wall. Yeah, that's what makes Van Gogh go. <laughs> I'm not an artist. I'm a good musician. I'm a good musician. Well, you know, one of the things that I feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about is sort of the importance and immediacy of of a certain work of art to its time, and also the sort of thematic nature of a collection of songs and and what they can present. Um, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the work that you did with Brian Wilson on Smile, which is, you know, maybe the most legendary album that never emerged in its time, you know, the way it was originally intended right away. And we saw a lot of those songs released on the Beach Boys LP, Smiley Smile. And then we saw, you know, Brian Wilson present Smile in 2004. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you saw those songs kind of come out, you know, piecemeal and then later... Was there a sense of final, you know, just finally in 2004 to say finally and a sense of satisfaction that went with that? Or was there still sort of like a lingering, you know, sense of, of difficulty and the fact that the way it was originally intended was not the time or the way it came out? i tell you something. I abandon all hope and honor and all but my primitive will uh, during the collapse of the project. When uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. O'Leary's the hat session and so forth, I I I knew I was a goner. Everyone, uh, uh, there was just so much. Uh, and the backstory we know that there were a lot of people giving Brian a, a, a lot of drugs and so forth, and there, all of a sudden there was a tremendous amount of a corporate uh, uh, hangers, you know, remoras on the body of the of the artist Brian Wilson. And and so it was just I had already been surrendered any proprietary it was over as far as I was concerned. For me, I had had a great I made I knew I had done my best. I had done the best work I could with the with the melodies that were delivered to me. I had great respect for his ability. I had very much regretted um, the pressure that was on him to support 
so many people in his in his wonderful labors. It was just very sad to me, mm-hmm. and so nothing further uh, mattered to me. Uh, neither, neither, and uh, it, it, it could. It it was. It, I could not have received more abuse or 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 praise for any of it that would have any significance that would turn my head hmm. because that's because honest to God we can't do that we can't let that happen yeah. we must just do our best and I I was satisfied I had done my best yeah did I like what ultimately came out when Brian Wilson presents his smile. Well, the Welsh say, Nadekia Gethia Glyph. Nothing is good where better is possible. <laughs> the delayed response did not add up to justice as far as I was concerned. Huh. But I, I did get the notoriety. Yeah. Did get the notoriety. It's really interesting to me that, you know, you are so known for your melodies and it's fascinating to me that for the smile sessions that you were really brought in as a lyricist. And, I, you know, I listen to a song like Heroes and Villains and the way that the words are placed where you have a syllable per note. I mean, I almost feel like as a lyricist, you were approaching uh, with a with a melodic sensibility, if that makes any sense. I've been in this town so long and back in the city I've been taken for a lost to come And I've known for a long, long time Fell in love years ago with an innocent girl From the Spanish and Indian home Pull up the heroes and Telling a little story here is the ballad, and uh, and um, and not sacrifice one syllable. Hmm. Don't ask the uh, man to change the melody for because you can't figure out whether to say doesn't or don't. Hmm. Don't you know? You don't give the man a problem. Do his melody, and I never, I never dare to ask Brian to change hmm. yeah. the placement of a note. Uh, no, no, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Because yeah. I knew, I knew, I knew the power of melody, and and his melodies were beautiful, and so I didn't. No, no, that was great. I could not. I felt like a Walenda without a net. It was very difficult, hmm. and very rapid. And I think if I hadn't been so darn uh, frightened, because I knew I was serving the most successful single individual in the music business, hmm. and uh, that intimidated me, but I. I coughed it up in a day. Wow. Look at that. Isn't that something? <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, why was it? I've always been curious why you were tapped as the lyricist when you weren't necessarily known as a lyricist hmm. up to that point. You know, I got that job. 
by suggesting the cello on, on good vibrations. And I've said that many times because, huh. you know, it's like an old general rehearsing his uh, codger rocker bullshit to whatever self-aggrandizement. <laughs> me, me, me. I did, I said, I told him the cello. Anyway, <laughs> but it turned out to be the ruby slippers of that picture. Hmm. It turned out to be a good idea. Yeah. Those eighth note triplets. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me excitations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me excitations. That's what drew his attention. So I went on to like. <laughs> the organ pedal to hold up the, the low notes in the middle of, of uh, good vibrations. So it became an opportunity to actually get along with Brian. Yeah. And once he, assumed, he saw that I was non-compete, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have that hmm. quality of competition that Mike Love had. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he and he found that easy. And we were easy companions. Simple as that. Yeah. And so he asked me up to his home, and into his home. And uh, that was so very sweet. And even I remember, I think I stayed several nights there with my the woman that I was courting at the time. Hmm. And I intended I married her. Hmm. But so it was all really good, you know. And and. And it was just doing something constructive that got me into that netherland of of lyrics. (laughs) And I and I didn't Hmm. know that anybody else would have wanted that job Hmm. because it was a tough job. Yeah. Yeah. It was Brian trying to be liberated from his same old, same old. He had the insistence of his of his tremendous energy in our, you know, uh, everything. So I think, and 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 so above and beyond all that, am I grateful for all of that? Yes, and I am happy that I have lived through it. I, as far as a smile is concerned, my only thought really is the one that plagues me at night is that my parents didn't live long enough hmm. to see me watch them eat crow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, my parents did not wow. see the, the record come up, and they were such sweet parents who believed in my convictions. Yeah. You know, I, I have one, one question just kind of by way of overview, and, and using your work as, as context and lens for this question. You know, you've You've written things that that are that lean heavily on orchestration and melody, and, and there are things that you've been responsible for lyric. You've written things that have been heard by millions, and you've written things that you know have been heard by smaller numbers. What to you makes a work of music an important work? Does it have anything to do with the reception itself, or what the music is trying to communicate, or what it says, or what what delivers importance to you to a, a piece of music? Well, that it, that it, that it, uh, that it empowers. It must hmm. empower, hmm. somehow move someone. I mean, to me, as we're talking about think, uh, music that matters. Yeah. 
music that matters must be, uh, yeah, I think, yes, mutually empowering. You have to be able to, and I, I, that's why I say melody. I hate to be so, so tedious, but melody is where it is. I mean, I'm sorry for the guys who are making me. I, I keep several stations on hip-hoppery. I'm into it. I listen to, I've tried on, uh, as well as Latino music, of course. I, I listen to stuff to learn outside of my anglicized privilege, my, my checking my privilege, if I ever had one, at a gate. <laughs> and uh, uh, I think I did that sufficiently uh, uh, in the 60s, ready, ready uh, to pay any price to serve this way at, because that's, that's what matters to me. That's what, that's what informs me, um, uh, is this music that somehow confirms or agitates or has made a difference by its clever or superior design, something I wish that I had the power of imitation to to uh, to put into my game plan, knowing full well that music that matters also has usually the quality of invention and feels like it's doing something that hasn't been observed. This is why I don't throw out the dead white guys. Hmm. It's just stupid. It's called balderism. He's too hip for your room. Hmm. If you start doing that, you don't toss people like that out. And to me, a day without Bach is possibly a barren day. And I'll tell you why. Because Bach, not not only he got it done, I mean, incredible. The physical physical, uh, output of this guy, just uh, beyond our reckoning. And... The thing is, he knew he knew how to write sex. He knew how to write a lust for life, that incredible, I mean, real passion, and the ability to deceive, which I think is also a great invention in music. Hmm. Oh, boy, where are we going now? All right. <laughs> Brian Wilson knew that stuff. It was a shock therapy, an otic shock therapy to... Deceived the way Brian did uh, in Good Vibrations and beyond in all of that sound. You find that. And also, in looking at the baselines, folks, I mean, a lot of people, why, do I, why would I mention Bach? I'll tell you why, because, yeah, I've been talking about melody, but I'm also interested in what happens at the bottom, hmm. as much as Alan Toussaint was. Right. And uh, I tell you something, I'm just as interested as I can be in that because it's where the bass is going, and all of a sudden you realize every every line is somehow independent and powerful. Bach, his bass lines are as as figured and rational as anything that came out of Detroit when Motown was really rocking. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about voice leading, voice leading. Where you and you just grab them by the you, 
You're twisting knickers. If you've got a bass line that goes somewhere, you start to twist knickers. People get up and dance, and they believe you. And also then, and Bach does, this, of course, all the lines are like that. It's like the, the age of the madrigals. Everybody's going somewhere. It's like a great Hitchcock picture when everything resolves neatly. Yeah. And if you're lucky, you'll get the MacGuffin. That is the punchline. Huh. Telling you what the fuck you just heard. <laughs> silly, silly. I love it. I love it. My favorite song was written by Orlando Gibbons. He was the uh, court uh, musician to James II, I believe. A Stuart King. And that would be in the 1620s that he wrote this lyric. The Silver Swan. While living hath no note, when death approached, unlocked her silent throat, leaning her breast against the reedy shore, thus sang her first and last, and sang no more. Farewell, all joy. O death, come close mine eye. More geese than swans now live, more fools than wise. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Oh, God, that was a MacGuffin. Yeah. <laughs> he, waits, he waits to the end to get the spank, spank. Right. <laughs> this has been uh, an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us about writing and, and particularly the reminder of great music needs to, to move people to action. I think that's such an important theme that you've touched on. Scott, you're very generous, and both of you guys are encyclopedic. You guys, will you stay strong, and next time let me hear all about you? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Van Dyke. We really appreciate it. Me three. I <laughs> too. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.